Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony. I'm the founding president and CEO of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. We established in 1983 as a non-governmental organization, public uh, supported uh, charity. Our mission uh, is one word, it's educational. And uh, today uh, we're going to be focusing precisely on that. Uh, we have the distinct pleasure and privilege and honor of having David Rundell, uh, who has just completed a book uh, uh, in terms of vision or mirage uh, with respect to Saudi Arabia at the crossroads. Uh, hold a copy up for you. Uh, it's published by Bloomsbury uh, Press and through Amazon and other uh, book procurement outlets. Uh, I encourage you to use that route uh, to purchase what uh, I'm sure you will find if you're a generalist, the best book you will ever have read on Saudi Arabia. And if you're a specialist, uh, you will find the credibility and the legitimacy of the perspectives and the background and the context uh, that David Rundell provides uh, throughout the book from beginning to end. It's endorsed by former Secretary of State and National Security uh, Affairs Advisor Henry Kissinger, uh, two former ambassadors uh, to Saudi, three former ambassadors to Saudi Arabia. And on the acknowledgments page, uh, one would find out uh, how many people uh, he worked with uh, in producing this volume. Of course, the focus and uh, a short question is on stability. Uh, but in order to have stability, arguably, one has to have security. So there is this linkage, uh, joined at the hip, of security. If you do not have security, uh, you're unable to plan, you're unable to anticipate, you, you're unable to prepare. And all of those are key to having a country that's characterized by stability, political stability, social stability, economic stability, and in terms of regional stability. Now, in Saudi Arabia, you have a, a country that is the captain of the team, so to speak, or the political headquarters, uh, so to speak, of the following organizations. And just ponder the influence that comes with any country that has a close and intimate working uh, partnership at their strategic levels, multifaceted in focus and needs and concerns and mutuality of benefits. Saudi Arabia is the headquarters of the six country Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, the most recent uh, sub-regional organization in the Arab world. Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates and Oman. Saudi Arabia remains a founding member of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. And uh, from its inception in that organization has been the one organization that has wielded uh, more influence uh, than any other. Of the uh, G20 uh, countries, uh, Saudi Arabia is the only Arab uh, country that is a member of the G20. And this is of enormous importance. And the author, David Rundell, had a lot to do uh, uh, with the American input and encouragement uh, to enable Saudi Arabia to be part of the G20. And this year, uh, unfolding in front of us, 
on numerous events and programs and activities uh, under the umbrella of the G20. In addition, uh, ponder the following, that 22 Arab countries, Saudi Arabia by default is the leading one of those 22. In olden days, um, and uh, the two principals in this webinar, uh, Ambassador Michael Gafella uh, supplementing uh, uh, David Rundell, uh, they have been witness to uh, the fact that Iraq is no longer on the table uh, with any pretense to be the leader of the Arab region. Uh, Egypt, uh, long since, uh, has left the game in that regard. And it may be true that the drumbeat of Arabism and Arab nationalism, Arab sisterhood, Arab brotherhood beats nowhere stronger than it does in downtown Damascus. But Syria, too, is roiled and rent. Uh, with instability and insecurity. So Saudi Arabia is number one for those reasons of default. Not that it sought uh, this role, uh, but people have looked up to Saudi Arabia and it has picked up the baton there and is uh, without question leader there. Of the 28 Middle Eastern countries, Saudi Arabia is certainly by far geostrategically the most important of those 28. If you go to the organization of the Islamic Conference with its 57 member states, Saudi Arabia, of course, is the number one there with the holy places of Mecca and Medina and the geographical nodal North Star point to which uh, all pious Muslims uh, turn and face in obeisance uh, to uh, the Almighty. So that plus the Hajj of once in a Muslim's lifetime uh, to go to the holy places, which are in Saudi Arabia. And its title is more the custodian of the two holy places than it is a kingdom a as such. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to uh, David Rundell, who is unique in the sense of having uh, spent uh, 30 years, uh, the better part of 30 years in Saudi Arabia, I know of no other senior major diplomat who has served in all three of Saudi Arabia's uh, geopolitical uh, centers, the capital in Riyadh, uh, the former uh, center of the foreign uh, affairs ministry in Jeddah, and the so-called oil patch in the eastern province centered on Dhahran and the consulate general there and the various delegations of American leaders that I have brought to the kingdom, uh, members of Congress, chiefs of staff, uh, their defense and foreign policy advisors, their communications and uh, local uh, affairs directors. Uh, uh, David Rundell has made a defining difference in his meetings and his briefings with uh, all of these visitors who have come uh, seeking knowledge in a different perspective. Now, uh, the book is full of background, full of context, and full of perspective honed and hammered out on the anvil uh, of his direct empirical firsthand experience. Where others uh, see Saudi Arabia as a gas station, he knows it is very much uh, a vibrant uh, country with 13 neighbors, if you can imagine. Uh, it's hard to see how one can circumnavigate the globe without transiting at least through Saudi's 
Rebus airspace, if not also its uh, uh, sea space. Others see the country as a mountain of, of, of money and not the heir uh, to an extraordinarily rich and cultured dynamic civilization uh, that has had a lot to do with the Renaissance in Europe and the industrialization of Europe and its uh, resource in terms of hydrocarbons powering the economies of every country in the world, rich and poor, large and small, new and, and old, and, and intermediate size. Uh, David Rondell has been at the center of all of these dynamics. I would like to ask him if he would uh, speak about his book and uh, what led to it and um, his conclusions that are worthy of being given serious and favorable uh, consideration by any and all analysts. David Rondell. Good afternoon, and thank you for that warm introduction. I wrote this book really to be a handbook for my successors at the American Embassy in Riyadh. I had worked there for 15 years in different capacities, including the chief of mission for about nine months. And I had started off as the most junior political officer 30 years before that. So I had a rather unique perspective of Saudi Arabia, both in terms of the time that I was there, but also in terms of the many, many different jobs that I had done. I had been the, in the political section as a junior officer and as the head of the section. I'd been in the economic section, again, as a junior person and a senior person. And I'd been in the commercial section, which was very unusual for a foreign service officer from the State Department as a junior person and as the most senior commercial counselor. So all of this gave me a unique perspective and a number of people, including uh, Ambassador Dick Murphy and Ambassador Walt Cutler, encouraged me to sit down and, and put down what I had learned. So that was the origin of the book. Um, but it was also meant to be helpful to the people not who had been there before or a, 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 a thank you to them, but also to help the people who were coming. When I, for example, when I was the political counselor, I would have to explain to people that this is a very different country. Saudi Arabia is probably, if you have a scale of how important a country is to how poorly it's understood in the West, I think Saudi Arabia is at the top of that list. It, it remains a very important country, not only to energy markets, but also to resolving the Arab-Israeli dispute, to maintaining stability in the Middle East, and also to the tone of global Islam. So it remains important, but it also remains poorly understood because it is such a weird and unusual place. And what do I mean by that? Well, as I said, when I was the political counselor, I would tell my junior officers, look, take your political science book and throw it away. This country does not operate along the models that you have been taught. If you want to understand Saudi Arabia, go and buy a book about Henry VIII. And go try and understand how he ran Tudor England. And then you'll understand how Saudi Arabia runs today. It is an absolute monarchy. The only strategically important absolute monarchy in the world today. Certainly the only one in the G20. Um, 
again, when I was the economic counselor, I had to tell my junior officers, take your economics textbook and throw it out the window. And they looked at me and they would say, why is that? And I would say, well, how do you have fiscal policy in a country that doesn't have any taxes? How do you have monetary policy in a country that is has its currency pegged to the dollar, which effectively means that their interest rates are established by the Federal Reserve in Washington? Or for another example, how do you have Keynesian multipliers, which effectively means that when the government spends money, it's multiplied through the economy. And yes, that happens to some extent in Saudi Arabia, but a great deal of that money is shipped home to Manila or to Karachi. So it does a lot of good. Uh, the multiplier works in Pakistan, but it doesn't do so much in Saudi Arabia. So many of the features of a modern economy, like many of the features of a modern political system, uh, don't operate in Saudi Arabia. So the purpose of this book was really to try and explain some of that to a Western audience, and in addition, to help them understand the transition which is going on right now in Saudi Arabia. There is a very large transition. There is a huge amount of change, uh, social change, economic change, and political change going on in Saudi Arabia today. It's not well understood. Uh, and it is some for some of it is going well and some of it is going less well. Uh, but the point that the book would make in the end is that if we hope to shape that change, that we need to remain engaged with Saudi Arabia. So that is the outline of why I wrote the book, who it was written for. Um, and I'll turn it over to Ambassador Gefeller, who uh, himself has a very distinguished career. Um, being the only person in the Foreign Service ever to have the highest linguistic score in both Russian and in Arabic, uh, a winner of numerous awards. Uh, and I've always been, it's always been a pleasure to work with him and to know him as a friend. So I'll turn it over to you, Ambassador Gefeller. Well, first of all, a word about um, David's new book. Um, thank you for those compliments, David. I mean, I think really uh, this is one of the finest books that's ever been written on Saudi Arabia. It's right up there with Lacey's uh, The Kingdom, which came out in the 70s, um, almost 40 years ago now. Uh, and I think it's going to be uh, become one of the standard books. This is not an instant book. This is a book based on four decades of experience in the Middle East. And I've never met anybody who understood The Kingdom as well as David uh, did. Um, certainly no Western expert can rival him in that regard. So in my role as moderator today, David, just to bring some of this vast knowledge you've got, uh, out for the benefit of our audience. Let's start with foreign policy. I'd like you to characterize from the perspective of your decades of experience how you see the overall framework regionally and intellectually for Saudi foreign policy. Um, and I'd like to ask you in that context how you see Riyadh's relationships um, with uh, Washington, Russia, and Beijing. Uh, how do they conflict and in what ways uh, do they perhaps counterbalance each other? Uh, and finally, how do you see Saudi Arabia's greatest threat and greatest opportunity in terms of foreign policy. That's a lot, but um, yeah, that's a lot. I may have to re I may have to ask answer one and then ask you to to re ask the uh, the second or third question. But I think the first question, in terms of the setting that Saudi Arabia finds itself in, is um is an interesting one. Um, some things are constant and some things are changing. 
one of the things that's constant is that Saudi Arabia is a status quo power. Um, it has a, um, how would you phrase it? It's a status quo power that wants to maintain stability in the Middle East. It has a lot to lose in terms of economics. Uh, it has a lot of positive benefits that it doesn't want to have uh, disrupted. So Saudi Arabia um, doesn't like things that rock the boat, whether that is Nasser's form of Arab nationalism, whether that's bin Laden's form of Islam, whether that is Khomeini's revolution, the Arab Spring, whatever is rocking the boat in the Middle East at the moment, the Saudis don't like because they are, to be perfectly frank and honest, are quite happy the way things are. Uh, and that's not just the Saudi government. That is the Saudi people as well. Um, are usually, when they look around at the rest of the Arab world, they think that they're actually doing pretty well. So, number one, they're a status quo power. And I should have I should have begun by saying, I should have prefaced this, I should have said that when you ask me about the setting of the Middle East today, I see that it has three, I talk about it sometimes as the, the war of the three caliphs. There are three competing power centers in the Middle East today. And the first one, which I've just begun to describe, is Saudi Arabia, the status quo power. Um, it remains a large country that uh, has difficulty defending its own interests. It does remain dependent to a considerable extent, to a very large extent, uh, on its relationship with the United States. It has a 70-year partnership with the United States in which it has supported almost really pretty much every American initiative in the Middle East in one way or another um, to a greater or lesser extent, but it has been a reliable uh, supporter of American foreign policy in the Middle East. It is um, a, it sees itself to some extent as a leader, uh, to a considerable extent, as a leader, not the spokesman, not the definitive leader, but as an important player in the Sunni Islam and certainly as a guardian of Mecca and the Hajj. And that is part of the monarchy's legitimacy. Um, it uh, is the leader, if you will, of a faction, one of the three factions I was talking about, which is really uh, an alliance between Saudi Arabia, an alliance and a partnership between Saudi Arabia and uh, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt, uh, to some extent Bahrain and Jordan or smaller players in this, but these are all countries which basically like the status quo. Opposed to them are two revolutionary powers. And I choose my words carefully. These are two revolutionary powers. One is Iran. They call themselves the Islamic uh, Republic. They refer to themselves as a revolutionary uh, government. They have the Iranian, what do they call themselves, the Revolutionary Guard. Um, Revolutionary Guard Council. So they um, they are Shia. They are um, believe in challenging Saudi Arabia's role, not only um, in Islam, uh, but also they. And when I say in challenging their role in Islam, what do I mean by that? I mean challenging Saudi Arabia's right to govern the Hajj, to control Mecca and Medina. Uh, they challenge Saudi Arabia when they can in OPEC, uh, and they are profoundly anti-Western. Uh, the Iranians would very much like to get not just the United States, but all Western powers 
out of the Middle East, out of certainly out of the Persian Gulf region, and they view themselves as a natural hegemon uh, in that in that part of the world. And they have been an expansionist country for now for 20, at least 20 years. They have been trying to expand their influence throughout the Middle East. And they've done that largely through a foreign legion, if you will, of proxy, uh, proxy fighters. And we can talk about some of those, uh, who those are later. Now, the third group, if you will, the third caliph um, is one, the third force, if you will, is one that people uh, perhaps overlook. And that really is what I call the Islamists. Um, these are a group of people, a group, not just a group of people, a group of countries and a group of movements, um, which again are revolutionary, again, which want to change the status quo, which are not happy with the way things are, which are by and large anti-Western and which are um, certainly anti-monarchical. And they are heavily influenced by the ideology of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and they are by and large, um, by and large anti-Western, as I said. Um, and who are the leaders of this group? The, if you will, the spearhead of this group really is, um, is Turkey. And the financer of this group is Qatar. Uh, and these people, again, operate through a large number of institutions and parties in many countries. And who would those be? I just to give you an example. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you some of them. I mean, obviously, if you talk about the Iranians, who are their proxies? Their proxies would be Hezbollah in um, Lebanon, the popular militias in Iraq, uh, the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, as regards to the um, Islamists, they are in many places the Islamic, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood themselves, which often call themselves the Muslim Brotherhood, but in other places they have different names. Hamas is effectively the Muslim Brotherhood of the Palestinians. The AC party in um, Turkey is essentially a Muslim Brotherhood offshoot. The Islam party in Yemen. These are all, they have a certain um, similarity in their DNA. Now, they are not fond of the Saudis any more, quite frankly, than the Iranians. So the Saudis are really, if you will, being uh, hammered uh, by both sides. And what is happening now often in the Middle East are a series of civil wars. And I think that's important to understand. What is going on in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq when it is not stable, uh, in Yemen today, in Libya? All of these are civil wars. And in most of them, there are competing uh, non-government factors, non-government forces, some of which are being helped, if you will, by the Iranians, and some of which are being um, supported uh, by the various Islamic movements. Um, so the Saudis and their group find themselves in the middle of all this. And I think it's important to understand that uh, the agreement that has been recently reached, uh, Mike asked me, so I think that's the, let me back up and say, that's the sort of the setting. Uh, then I think your next question was, what are the, the um, challenges and what are the opportunities that this setting presents for the Saudis? I think right now the biggest challenge is that they are not really able to, as I said, to effectively compete in these civil wars. They don't have proxies who come to their, to, to, to their assistance. They're, the people that they were, in a sense, early on supporting in what became the Syrian civil war uh, turned out not to be their friends, and they abandoned them. Uh, I think that those, I, I don't, the Muslim Brotherhood is a complicated organization. Some of them are 
peaceful, pro-democracy people, and some of them are terrorists. So the, it's a very big umbrella. It's, a, it's so, but some of them definitely um, have turned to violence, and some and uh, some of them if, that um, have are, are no friends of the Saudis. So I, I back up and say, look what happened in Syria. Part of the reason the Saudis were, in the end, willing to acquiesce to Russian involvement in Syria was because they didn't like the idea of the Islamists uh, taking over. They would rather have the Assad regime remain in power than have to deal with an Islamist regime. Uh, This was also true, if you will, of why the UAE made an arrangement or is coming to an arrangement with um, Israel. People say it's because they're worried about Iran. Yes, they're worried about Iran, but they're also concerned about the Islamists. Uh, so this this triangular uh, setting plays out in a lot of ways. And the one that is most disruptive to the Saudis at the moment, really, I have to say, is Yemen. Um, so let me pause there for a minute and and reflect for a moment on Yemen. Um, which is one of the issues which has gained a great deal of attention in the United States, which has been a humanitarian disaster, which is, a hum- which is an ongoing humanitarian disaster. There's a huge amount of suffering, uh, which is, is not, uh, not being abated at the moment. I think the Saudi involvement in Yemen uh, draws a number of analogies to American foreign policy. And what do I mean by that? Well, the first analogy I would say is to the Cuban Missile Crisis. The United States was unwilling to allow the Soviet Union to place missiles in Cuba and to gain a foothold in the Caribbean. The Saudis are unwilling, uh, were unwilling, and I believe remain unwilling, to allow Iran to gain a foothold and a missile base permanently in the Arabian Peninsula. So their initial goal was to keep the Iranians out of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, I'll digress here for a moment and and tell you, um, many people put this at the door of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. That is historically... um, inaccurate, really. He played a role, but it was not, as you sometimes read in the press, the impetuous prince took his country into a war head over heels. Planning to get involved militarily in Yemen began when King Abdullah was still on the throne. It took place three months after, actually almost two months, after King Abdullah came to the throne. At that time, Mohammed bin Salman was a newly appointed defense minister. He was not the deputy crown prince. He was not the crown prince. He was not the foreign minister, which was still the esteemed Saud al-Faisal. And he was certainly not the king. Uh, So he did not make this decision on his own. Moreover, the global community supported that decision. Uh, The United States supported it and continued for a long time under the Obama administration to support the Saudi efforts in Yemen, both with logistics, with munitions, with intelligence. Uh, and we were not alone in doing that. The French and the British did this, did the same. The United Nations Security Council passed two 
resolutions condemning the Houthis and authorizing a naval blockade. So this was to say that this was all the work of some 30 year old prince who just, you know, was out of control is is a misunderstanding of what actually happened. So the first analogy is how you got into the situation there in the first place. Um, the second analogy I would I would draw is one to um, how long you're still there. The United States did not anticipate that we would still be in Afghanistan 20 years later, and the Saudis did not anticipate that they would be in Yemen five years later. So the war dragged on, as wars often do, much longer than the Saudis anticipated. I think. To be, to be fair, they expected it would be quick. Uh, they were wrong. Uh, and they are paying a big price for that, which leads us to the third analogy, which really is the analogy with Vietnam, in which the Saudis have now come to realize that this war is unwilling, unwinnable militarily at a price that they are willing or able to pay. And so like the United States and Vietnam, they are looking for a negotiated settlement and they're trying to find one. And again, like the United States, once it's clear that you're trying to find a negotiated settlement, the people you're negotiating with become more difficult to deal with. But I think when you, if you ask me what is the biggest problem that Saudi Arabia's foreign policy faces right now, it is this Yemen, and that does it is a it is a it is a cost to them, and it is a, it is a source of instability. Um, if you ask me, and I think you did ask me, what is their greatest opportunity? I think the greatest opportunity really is to resolve the Arab-Israeli con conflict. Um, we've seen some rather dramatic steps in that direction, and I'm not referring only to the UAE agreement with uh, Israel, but to steps which the Saudis have taken unilaterally over the last year and a half. And some of the listeners may not be aware of all of those, but they're quite significant. Um, you probably know that there are now, after 70 years, the Saudis have decided to allow overflight of aircraft going to Tel Aviv across Saudi airspace. And that was originally did not include El Al. It, basically, the first flights were coming from India. Uh, just last week, they decided that now El Al is included in this. So there are now Israeli flights across Saudi airspace. That's a pretty big step. Um, a step that was even uh, perhaps more interesting was the Saudi foreign, uh, the former Saudi justice minister uh, going to the 75th anniversary of the liberation or the freeing of Auschwitz uh, and where he made numerous statements denouncing Holocaust deniers. Again, that is a rather significant change in the attitude that Saudi leaders have expressed in the past. Um, the Saudi football team has gone and played games in Palestine or in occupied territories where they have then gone into Jerusalem and prayed at Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, there are a whole number of things. Uh, when this American embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, there was more condemnation of that in the European press than there was in the Saudi press. And perhaps most interestingly enough, there has been a television show on Saudi, in Saudi Arabia called The Mother of Aaron. And this uh, TV show is about a Jewish family in a fictitious Arab country. Uh, but some of the dialogue actually takes place in Hebrew. 
So to have a TV show like that in uh, Saudi Arabia is quite dramatic. And the Crown Prince has made it clear a number of, on a number of occasions and with a number of Western interviewers that he believes the opportunity uh, for economic cooperation with Israel once peace is obtained is very significant. And I don't think it's an accident that his new city, Neom, is being built uh, 30 miles from Elat. So I think that if you look at the opportunities that Saudi Arabia has, uh, finding a solution to the Arab-Israeli um, conflict, which has plagued the region for a long time, uh, is um, is probably at the top of the list. I would, um, you didn't ask this question, but it's one that I've asked when I've been in Saudi lately or been talking to Saudis. And that is, what is the reaction to the UAE's um, agreement with the with Israel. And one hears from many sources uh, in, in the press that the Arab world is opposed to this. I can't speak for the Arab world. I can speak really only for the Saudis that I speak with. And there I can say there's a very clear divide, as many things in Saudi Arabia today are divided by generation. People over 60 are angry. They feel that the UAE betrayed the Arab cause, betrayed Arab nationalism, um, betrayed the Palestinians. Uh, the people who are between, if you will, 40 and 50 or 35 and 50 are somewhat ambivalent. They tend to share the anger. Uh, they're not as vociferous about it, but they tend to be a little uneasy about this radical change. But you've got to remember that 60% of the Saudi population is under 30 years of old, under 30 years of age. And if you talk to them, they're quite pleased. They're very pleased. They're actually looking forward to going to Israel for a visit. Uh, it may be harsh to some ears that are listening, but young Saudis believe that the Palestinians are to some extent to blame for their own inability to make peace that the Palestinians were ungrateful to the Saudis on numerous occasions, particularly during the first Gulf War when they actually sided with the Iraqis. Uh, they believe that the um, Arab-Israeli conflict has been very costly to Saudi Arabia in terms of denying it access to cooperation with Israel, which they believe could be helpful. And uh, some of them even go on, go so far as to say, look, the Palestinians can't win. So why should we continue to back them? I'm not saying that I personally agree with all of those comments, but those are comments that I hear from young Saudis. So young Saudis um, are not unhappy about this at all. And as we've seen in so many things, Mohammed bin Salman is betting on demographics. He's betting on young Saudis to be the bulwark of his support in the future. Now, I'm trying to remember all your questions, Michael, and I think that the final question was about um, other great powers' involvement in Saudi Arabia. I think there's no doubt that since the departure of the British, really after Suez and certainly after their departure from the Gulf in the 70s, uh, the United States has been the predominant uh, major power in the Arab world. And that's still true today. Uh, make no mistake about it. Uh, and and I, I would only begin to think about whether the United States was pulling out of the Middle East 
If I saw the Fifth Fleet leave Bahrain, if I saw us close down our vast air base in Qatar, if I saw the thousands of troops uh, that we have in Kuwait leave, then I would begin to think about the United States really pulling out of the Middle East. But none of that seems to be happening. And I doubt that even a President Biden would do that precipitously. Um, That said, Russia is certainly back in a much bigger way than it has been since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And Saudi Arabia, which had no relations with the Soviet Union, well, actually, 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 that's not true. Historically, the first country to recognize Saudi Arabia was uh, the Soviet Union. That was back in the 30s, and that relationship didn't last too long. But uh, in modern times or in contemporary times, they had no relations with, uh, with the Soviet Union. They now have uh, quite good relations if you, uh, with, with uh, Russia, and they have invested in, uh, this, uh, in the Russian uh, sovereign wealth fund. They, are, they have talked about some joint economic projects. But most importantly, and this was a big success for Saudi foreign policy or for Saudi oil policy, was that they did um, orchestrate a cooperative arrangement with Russia on uh, oil production and oil prices. So they have something called OPEC+. OPEC Plus, which was around for a couple of years and then was formally um, created in a, in, in, a, in a legal sense. So they have a much better relationship with uh, Russia. I don't think they're going to start buying um, Russian arms anytime soon. Uh, well, they, in, in, in a major way, let's phrase, for major platforms. Uh, but Russia is certainly a player. Again, Russia is, is a big player in other parts, certainly in Syria. Uh, The other factor, which probably is the most interesting feature of the international dynamics in the last 20 years, is the rapid rise of China since it joined the WTO. And China has a very, um, very effective foreign policy. China's foreign policy is very different than America's foreign policy. China is... First of all, China doesn't care what you do within your own borders. They have no interest in your domestic policy. You can do whatever you like. Uh, they do whatever they like, and they, they consciously say that we're not interested in your internal affairs, including your human rights record. Uh, they deal bilaterally. They are not big fans of uh, multilateral organizations. They have not really played a constructive role in any of them, certainly not in the WTO, which they really didn't play by the rules. Um, and I know about that because I was a delegate to the WTO for a long time. Um, so unlike the United States, which does tend to work through multilateral organizations, uh, the Chinese do not. And the final thing is that the Chinese have by and large prioritized, um, economic relationships, uh, over, uh, military relationships. So, Although they, I would have to say, they frequently blur the line between military and uh, political or economic and military political uh, relationships. So that said, what have they done with regards to Saudi Arabia? Uh, They, Saudi Arabia recognized China. Uh, It began a series of moving up steps of increased, they, they have different terms for them. I can't remember them all, but one is a partner and the next one is a strategic partner and then they have a third one which uh, it's sort of how many stars you get on the 
in the Chinese uh, lexicon of their friends. So anyways, the Saudis have, have risen up to, I think, the second highest level in that matrix. And they have agreed to become the uh, end point of, uh, the, of the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative uh, for, the, for the Middle East. Uh, one of the Saudis' primary um, allies, if you will, partners, uh, Pakistan, is very definitely now uh, tilting towards uh, China, and that affects Saudi Arabia. Uh, but I think the two things that I would say most important about the Saudi relationship with China are the following. Number one, China is now Saudi Arabia's biggest customer. It is Aramco's biggest customer. They sell more oil to Saudi, Saudis sell more oil to China than to anybody else. Or let me phrase it differently. Yeah, that's true. I think it's true that Chinese get more oil from the Saudis than anybody else. But I know that the Saudis sell more oil to the Chinese than they do to anyone else. And likewise, China is now Saudi Arabia's largest trading partner. For, for 50 years, that was the United States. Um, and now we're number two. Um, the second thing I would say is that China is playing a quiet role in Saudi security. Uh, and it's, this is perhaps less well understood, but when the Iranians attacked Abqaiq and destroyed half of Saudi Arabia's ability to export oil, both the United States and uh, Russia made it clear that they were not happy with that, that there would be reaction if that happened again. Uh, and the United States sent some Patriot missiles to protect Abqaiq, which are not really the most effective system to, defect, to defend against drones, but it was a, it was a, a symbolic gesture. Uh, but what did the Chinese do? The Chinese canceled a multi-billion dollar refinery deal that they had with Iran. And they reminded Iran that, you know, we're the only people who are still buying your oil. We're the only people who are still investing in upgrading your oil industry. And we're the only people who are going to build a refinery in your country because the Americans have got sanctions on everybody else. And we don't like you're taking out half the export capacity of our number one supplier. So please don't do it again. So that, um, I think, resonated with the um, people in Tehran. So the Chinese are playing a more significant role than um, many people might think in terms of the security of Saudi Arabia. So um, that, I think, I think you had four questions. An overall overarching theme of which I say there are three competing forces. The biggest opportunity, which I think is peace with Israel. Uh, the biggest challenge, which is resolving the issue of Yemen and uh, something about the other superpowers or major powers in the Middle East. So I hope that answered your question. It was probably more than you wanted to hear, but hopefully it was succinct enough. It's actually never enough. And uh, thank you for those, uh, frankly, brilliant comments. Um, perhaps now we could turn a bit uh, in the remaining time to the internal scene in Saudi Arabia. Uh, of course, um, your book deals brilliantly with much of that. Um, again, um, so I don't fence into discussion too much, let me just proffer a, a general question. What has changed, uh, most importantly, in Saudi Arabia since the accession um, of King Salman in 2015? It's been five years of pretty dramatic change. And from your perspective, David, what have the most important changes been for good and for ill? 
David, before you answer that, uh, John Duke Anthony here, let me please say a word about uh, Ambassador Gofello, uh, which we did not uh, say before. Um, he's had a distinguished career, 26 years uh, as a diplomat to U.S. Foreign Service. Uh, David himself uh, mentioned his high scores on Arabic and, and Russian. Uh, but uh, pertinent to this uh, discussion and the questions you've already uh, fielded, David, is the fact that from 2003 to 2004, uh, Ambassador Gafella was the political affairs advisor and the regional coordinator of South uh, Central Iraq. And as I think you are aware, from 2004 to 2008, he served as the deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Saudi Arabia. And then from there, uh, 2010 to 2012, uh, served as the political affairs advisor to then commanding general of the U.S. Central Command, David Petraeus. And then upon retirement from the Foreign Service, he served as uh, director of government relations, international relations, and for the Middle East and North Africa of an up-and-coming uh, hydrocarbon energy uh, corporation called Exxon Mobil. So he has an extraordinary uh, background and wanted uh, to at least recognize that background uh, and invite you to uh, italicize your question to, to David. David, you've had a little time to think about it with those remarks uh, re regarding Ambassador Gofella. So the floor is yours again, David. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that. I think that uh, it's important that uh, people know that the guy asking the questions knows probably at least as much as the guy answering them. Um, what um, has changed? Well, there has been a great deal of change uh, culturally, economically, and politically. And I would preface all of this by again, I think to perhaps to some extent dispelling what I consider to be a, perhaps not a myth, but a something of a misunderstanding. Much of this is being driven by the crown prince, but much of it would have happened in any event because of a generational change. The young people in Saudi Arabia are now the majority of the population. The old generation is slowly leaving the scene and this many of these changes would have happened to some extent mohammed bin salman is following the advice of charles de gaulle who said always embrace the inevitable and i think that's a memorable quote so with that what has changed well the first thing that most people will focus on is gender change, cultural change as relates to gender equality. We all know that Saudi Arabia was the only country in the world where women could not drive and that now they are able to drive. But the changes with regard to gender go far beyond that. Most notably is something that was called the guardianship restrictions. This was an entire network of individual laws which prohibited women from doing a wide range of things. Uh, these have slowly been dismantled, not completely, 
It's not, it wasn't just one law that you could change and they have not all been dismantled, but many of them, in fact, most of them have been. So women can now get a passport. They can now open a business. They can now open a bank account. They can now put their child in school. They can now travel. They can now have a cesarean delivery. All of these things at one time regarded them, required them to have a um, sign-off, written sign-off by their guardian, who was usually their father or their brother. So that has changed. And I think along with um, the fact that their women are now no longer required to dress in the Islamic uh, garb, they many of them choose to, but they are not required to, uh, that they are now allowed to go to sporting events. And that indeed now there is our sporting events for girls in schools. Five years ago, not 10 years ago, five years ago, gym classes for girls were forbidden because it was considered uh, immoral uh, for a variety of reasons by people uh, to have girls participating in sports. Uh, that's gone away. So there's been a very major change in uh, gender equality in Saudi Arabia. And I think that really does need to be recognized. It goes far beyond um, women driving, and it actually goes into the workplace where we have, um, there, for most of my time in Saudi Arabia, there were a large number of jobs which women were legally prohibited from taking it. On, they couldn't be judges. They couldn't be lawyers. They couldn't be geologists. They couldn't be engineers. Uh, there were many things that they couldn't be. Most of those have gone now. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, and there is a clear affirmative action program in the government uh, and in the private sector, particularly in major multinational corporations and major corporations in general, to hire women and promote them. And I think, again, this is not my opinion. These, there, are, there are statistics to back this up. Uh, Saudi Arabia had five years ago when, when Vision 2030 began they had a female labor force participation rate, which is to say how many women of the, of what percentage of the women in the country are working. It was 20%. It's very low, one of the lowest in the world. Five years later, it's 30%. So it's increased by 50% in five years, which is quite dramatic. On the other hand, in the United States, it's 60%. So this is like so many things in Saudi Arabia, a question of do you think the glass is half full or half empty? Saudi Arabia's female labor force participation has increased by 50% in five years. Yes. It's still half of what it is in the United States. Yes. My, my take on that is within most things in Saudi Arabia is that progress is being made and it's being made in the right direction and it's going relatively rapidly, quite rapidly, actually. Um, I'll just give you one last statistic. This, again, is not something I invented. It's a fact. It's, it's the, the World Bank has a statistic that they put out about um, improvements for legal rights of women. And last year, 2019, Saudi Arabia was ranked number one in the world. Again, they got a long ways to go. They had a long ways to go. They still have a ways to go. But they've made more progress in the last year than any other country in the world. So I think that is uh, that's that's quite significant. Um, the social changes, I will go quickly on that. There, there are social changes which go beyond just gender. 
there used to be no music in Saudi Arabia. There used to be women and men could not sit unless they were married in a restaurant. Um, there used to be no movie theaters. Uh, all of that has changed. There's now magic shows, rock concerts, uh, all sorts of public entertainment is now taking place, which was unheard of, literally, literally unheard of. Uh, as I say, no movie theaters for 40 years. Uh, so that's all changed. Um, economically, uh, the world sort of changed for Saudi Arabia. Again, like I said, many of these changes are not just the pipe dreams of Mohammed bin Salman. These are things which were forced upon Saudi Arabia. The generational change was coming. Uh, young Saudis were looking at YouTube and they didn't want to live like their grandfather uh, and this, so these changes were, were uh, I wouldn't say inevitable, but they were they were likely um, the same with economics. Um, the fracking revolution uh, changed the changed the um, global energy, the global energy order. And specifically, it shifted the supply curve uh, for petroleum and Saudi. And the, it, it meant that the price of petroleum will probably not be a hundred dollars uh, a barrel for a long time and it also put a dent in saudi market share and i'm intimately involved uh in oil exploration and production in texas so again i know quite a bit about that i've been doing that for 35 years now and um the frackers aren't going away um we're we're going to be drilling in the third quarter of this year. We shut in we shut in production uh, in the um, first quarter of this year after the, with the COVID, but um, which was the first time we'd done that in a long while. But uh, people will begin drilling again in the third quarter. Um, acreage prices are down dramatically. Um, drilling costs are down twenty percent. So um, the frackers are not going to go away. And this is and the point I'm making is not to talk about the American energy industry, but to, just to say that the world changed for Saudi Arabia and they had to respond. Uh, and the response was Vision 2030. Uh, Vision 2030 is a complicated, uh, elaborate, uh, multidimensional program created by the Saudis with the help of really the best consultants in the world. Uh, McKinsey's, the Boston Consulting Groups, the Baines, the Oliver Wyman's, uh, others you could think of, um, Booz Allen Hamilton, many, many of them, um, all put together this plan, different parts of it. And um, the plan really has three goals. If, if, when, it, when you boil it down, what are they trying to do? The first thing they want to do is balance their budget. Their budget was bleeding red uh, at an unsustainable rate. They want to balance the budget. They want to uh, create jobs for Saudis, and they want to diversify the economy. Uh, and they have made some progress in all of those fields. Uh, they have uh, fiscal policy. They've actually imposed taxes for the first time. Uh, legally, they've created new banking regulations, new uh, mortgage laws, uh, new enforcement courts. These things are helping to make to improve the business uh, climate. They've begun privatization. Uh, everyone knows about the privatization of Aramco, but there's also been the privatization of ports, airports, uh, some power and water generation. Talking, They're getting ready to privatize the grain silos. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, they've begun to make it more difficult to employ foreigners. So somewhere between two and three million expatriates, uh, that's a, perhaps as many as a third of the expatriate population have left. 
Uh, Saudis haven't taken all of those jobs, but they've certainly started to take some of them. Uh, so, and I think the final thing I would talk about in terms of improving the economy is um, a very serious um, effort to confront corruption. Um, and any Saudi you will talk to will tell you that corruption, that the king and the crown prince are serious about that, uh, that Saudi businessmen will tell you that the amount of corruption they have to deal with now is dramatically reduced. There are now ways that you can anonymously report corruption to the anti-corruption committee. Uh, obviously, people have been put in jail for corruption. Um, I think that um, one of the most striking things is that everyone knew that high-level corruption was going on, but it was socially acceptable. People who were known to be corrupt still got invited to parties. They still got invited to join uh, government committees. That's not true anymore. It's now very clear that if you're known to be somebody with very tainted uh, money, uh, you are not welcome anymore. And uh, that has really begun to change the way things are going. Is it going? The question is, are we just getting rid of one group of corrupt people to put in a new group of corrupt people? Or is it um, really going to get rid of corruption in general? David, we got to get ready to stop. I know. Uh, So I will I will wrap it up with and I know people I will wrap it up with just. um, Let me ask one final question, David. Yeah. Okay. Who's the next king? Who's the next king of Saudi Arabia? Well, I think politically. um, I'll be very quick. Saudi Arabia was an absolute monarchy. It remains an absolute monarchy. So in that sense, there was very little political change. The political change in Saudi Arabia was that the third Saudi kingdom became the fourth Saudi kingdom, that there was a change, a shift from the third generation of, or actually the second generation, what depend, the second generation, the, the, the sons of King Abdulaziz to the grandsons and great grandsons of King Abdulaziz. That was never going to be easy. That was never going to be painless. Uh, it has upset a lot of people in the way that they were pushed aside, but <laughs> The transition has taken place, uh, and I think by and large, uh, it will be Mohammed bin Salman will be the next king, uh, unless something happens to him. Thank you, uh, David. Um, it's been an interesting uh, session. Uh, we've learned a lot. You provided an extraordinary array of uh, background, context, and perspective. Uh, some would take uh, issue with the third category of uh, adversaries that you mentioned. Uh, there are the three different caliphs. Uh, and you said we're anti-Western and anti-monarchical. And you put uh, Qatar in that uh, uh, category. I don't think uh, Qatar being a monarchy is anti-monarchical and hosting uh, the largest concentration of American forces in the Arab region. Uh, That's a valid point. That's a valid point. All right. Uh, Those. And then there are those who would take issue with uh, calling Saudi Arabia an absolute monarchy. Uh, uh, Certainly the Henry VIII, that was a good uh, suggestion to read that. And and he was, but I do not think any Saudi Arabian monarch uh, uh, would fit that description because uh, they're constrained by uh, consultation, constrained by consensus, they're constrained by the Holy Quran, the, uh, uh, constrained by the Hadiths and this uh, Sunnah. If they violate any of those, uh, they would be warned uh, first. And then if it happened a second time, uh, the message would be, this is the last time. 
and there wouldn't be a third term, they would be gone. And that was the case with King Saud, uh, who was just seen as unfit to remain as as the monarch. Uh, he, he could not uh, be absolute. So uh, Americans think or hear about these being absolute monarchs, but not in the case of any of uh, the uh, the reigning uh, monarchs with regard to the qualifiers. I just mentioned they cannot violate the Quran, the Sunnah, the Hadith, uh, consultation and consensus. Um, but oh, I agree. I, 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 John, I, I think both of both of those points are well taken. I, I don't I disagree with either one of them. You can whether you want to use the term absolute just as a as a name or but you're right. What you say about the, the limitations on their power and what you say about Qatar being an ally of the West. Uh, they shouldn't be included in the. Um, they are. They are. They are supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood. There's no doubt That's about true. that. Yes, uh, no. but they are certainly an ally of the West. I didn't mean to imply that they weren't. Yes, the only thing absolute is that we're absolutely at the end of our time. Uh, did you have a final statement, Ambassador Kofella? I, I just wanted to say thanks very much for including me in this fascinating session. And um, again, congratulations to my friend David Rendell on the publication of his book, which is a, a new classic. Thank you. Uh, congratulations to you, David. Also, I remember when we first met, it was in the 1970s, I believe, and I came to speak at St. Anthony's College in, in Oxford, and you were a protege of uh, Albert Hurani uh, at that time, and you uh, dutifully uh, mentioned him. So you had a fantastic uh, springboard in education from which to begin. And correct me if I'm wrong, weren't you for a brief period uh, the liaison in the Bureau of Near East South Asian Affairs to Congress? Yes, I was. I was. I was. I was in the Office of Congressional Relations, uh, primarily working, again, most everything I do relates to Saudi Arabia. I was working on Saudi arms sales there. I wasn't the only person doing it. Yes. Uh, okay. So just to add to an extraordinary background, uh, a generation focusing on the most important country in these six different international organizations, which are of immense importance uh, to the uh, United States. Uh, thank everyone for listening. And uh, Ambassador Caffelli, your fantastic questions to David. You, you pinned him to the wall, but he bounced back uh, with, <laughs> with, with erudition. Uh, thank you both. Uh, all the best to everyone. Thank Bye. you.